You know, it's funny. Somebody asked me the other day. Um, I was down in Atlanta at a church planting get together, and uh, somebody was asking me about, you know, what's your vision for your church and blah blah blah, because that kind of language gets thrown around a lot. And it's funny because I've got the stated answers, like we cover those stated answers in the membership and inquirers class, where we say that as a church we want to partner with God and and pray to God that He would make His invisible kingdom visible here in Rome, Georgia. So that's that's one answer. But as I found myself talking to this guy, I also found myself thinking, you know, one of the things I want to give to our people is I want to give them an offer of rest, okay, an offer of rest. Jesus said, come unto me, you know, you who are, you know, worn out, exhausted, you've been burdened, and I'll give you rest. And so this morning, there are many of you in this room, and I don't know where you are in life, um, I don't know what's going on, but I know that if you're anything like me, there are times where you feel fragile, and there are times where you feel thin, There are times where you feel bruised and broken and under attack. Uh, There are just times where you want to give up. Um, You're exhausted. And so one of the things I want to give you this morning is I want us to be a place where we can tell you that God invites you to come and to rest. And so I hope that the music today is restful for you. I hope the sermon is restful for you. I hope um, that talking to people in this room, that it's restful to you, but ultimately I hope that the Holy Spirit um, falls upon you and gives you the ability to rest um, in knowing that God loves you and that he offers you his peace through Jesus. Um, This morning, we are going to uh, jump into uh, an individual sermon. We just finished a series on the seven desires. Um, I hope you found that interesting and compelling. Um, But we're going to jump into something a little bit different today. Uh, Before we do that, I'm going to take one moment and I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you very much for inviting us into um, your presence this morning. And so, Father, since you invited us into your presence, I pray that you would meet us here. And, Father, I pray that you would um, give us peace. Um, I pray that you would give us um, a sense of your presence. Father, I pray that in knowing that you are with us, protecting us, and guiding us, um, that we would be able to rest this morning, to know that uh, you not only have the whole world in your hands, but you have our lives and our histories in your hands. And so, Father, we trust in you and in your son Jesus this morning. We pray that nobody would be able to leave this place this morning, Father, without having had an encounter with you, the living God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, we're going to play a very quick little game, and uh, this is not a rhetorical question I'm getting ready to ask you. I actually want you to verbally, out loud, tell me what you think the answer is. Okay, I'm going to put a quote up on the board. It's a great quote. It is from a movie, and don't say it until after I'm done, but I want you to see if you can name that movie. Here's the qu- and I can't say it in the correct accent, so you're just going to have to bear with me. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Can you name that movie? Also, what I'm planning to tell um, young men that come to pick up my daughter whenever they take her a date. I'm going to do, I'm not kidding. Anyway, so, so some of you, I'm glad that you got that. That's pretty cool. came out in 2008. Liam Neeson is in it. Uh, Famke Jansen, which by the way is my new, like, you know, if I've got to, if I stub my toe, I'm going to say Famke Jansen. Anyway, I, the name just sticks in my head. Anyway, um, other people are in the movie too. But basically the idea is this, is that uh, Liam Neeson is an ex-CIA agent. 
And uh, he's unfortunately divorced, and he's got a daughter who's 17 years old, and, and he is, uh, you know, doing the best that he can to sort of, you know, love on his daughter and sort of navigate the weirdness that exists now in this relationship with he and his ex-wife and his daughter. And there's a point in the movie where the daughter wants to go to Europe, uh, Paris in particular, with her best friend. And so um, the mom comes and says to Liam, Would, you know, let's let her go. It'd be great. They're going to stay with friends over there and family, and they'll be safe. They'll be fine. And and Liam Neeson, as a former CIA agent, is like, no, that is not okay for a 17-year-old and her friend to go travel over to Paris by themselves. And so but eventually he gives in. And he, he basically says, all right, you can go, but you've got to take this international cell phone, and you've got to call me when you leave, and you've got to call me when you get there. And you've got to call me every day, and you've got to do this and not do that and be safe. And so the daughter says, don't worry, Dad, I'll do all that stuff. She hops on the plane and goes to Paris with her best buddy. buddy. What, what he doesn't know at the time, or maybe he finds out later, is that um, his daughter is actually going over um, to Paris, but they're going to, to for a month, they're going to follow you two around as they go on a European tour. And it's just she and her friend. There's no family. There's no sort of people to protect them or to keep them safe. They're just going to go wander around on their own. And so inevitably what ends up happening is that these two girls get kidnapped by uh, a group of Albanian slavers, essentially. And uh, so what ends up happening is what you heard that quote a little while ago is a phone call from the daughter to her father where she's basically saying, Dad, they're coming to get me. And he says, you're right, they are going to take you. But she calls for help. And she calls for her father and says, come and rescue me, come and save me. And her father does just that. Now, what's interesting in the story is the reason that she gets into trouble is because she's foolish, right? For one thing, she's just not very wise. And she decides that it's okay to go travel around Europe with just this other 17-year-old girl, and they'll be just fine. By the way, this is also a movie that every father should have their daughters watch when they're about 15, maybe. Anyway, just kidding. I don't really recommend it. It's, It's spooky. That's number one. Um, but the other thing is not only is she foolish, but she's also dishonest, right? She's, she deceives her father into uh, you know, making him allow her or getting him to allow her to go. And, uh, and, and, and some of what she does is, uh, is really you know, sort of willfully wrong and rebellious, right, in the way that she communicates with him. So, so she ultimately ends up in this predicament captured by these Albanian slavers because of her dishonesty, because of you know, some naivete, some foolishness, but also because of some plain old rebellion. And so she's in trouble. She cries out for help, right? I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of the rest of you, but that could also be the story of the entire Bible, right? It could be the story of the Israelites. It could be the story of the New Testament. It could be our individual stories. And the good news is that the Bible uh, addresses all of these things, all of this brokenness in us. And in Psalm 80, this is a psalm that's written by Asaph, we see that there's an interesting uh, flow throughout this psalm. And essentially what's happened is we don't know exactly what the context of Psalm 80 is. We know that it's written by this guy named Asaph. Asaph was uh, the temple hymn writer during David and during Solomon and maybe a little bit afterwards. And so he saw all sorts of crazy stuff, right? He he saw Absalom try to take the throne from David. He he saw Solomon... um, basically marrying all these foreign wives and allowing foreign religions to sort of be present in Israel. He saw all this stuff happen. He, he probably saw uh, the kingdom being divided and being fragmented. And so at some point in time during this, he writes this hymn, and essentially what he says is, God, come and save us. Our shepherd, come and save us. Follow along with me, if you will, the words of Psalm 80. And again, this is written by Asaph, as far as we know here. It says this, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. 
You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. Our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man who you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Great psalm, right? Just absolutely fantastic. And what do we see in this psalm? Well, we see, obviously, first of all, that somehow the children of Israel are in trouble, right? And that they're calling out to God for help. And what we really see throughout the passage of this psalm is we see three different things that come out over and over again. One of which is that basically Asaph is saying, come save us, right? Come rescue us. Come restore us. Come let your face shine upon us. Those are the three things that we see. And what's interesting is this is placed into the worship hymnal of the, uh, the people of Israel. And I think it's placed in the worship hymnal precisely because God says, I want you to call out to me and because I will respond to those prayers, those calls for help. The first thing we're going to look at is that because God is our shepherd, he will rescue us. Because God is our shepherd, he will rescue us. Look at verses 1 and 2. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. And so throughout this psalm, four times, Asaph says, save us, save us, save us. And he calls God the shepherd of Israel. We know what shepherds do. We have some sort of an intuitive idea of what they do. They lead the sheep to water. They lead the sheep to pasture. We know that they protect them from lions and tigers and bears. We, make, we know they make sure that they, they have everything they need. But one of the things that they do as well is they rescue sheep because sheep uh, historically have been, uh, have been prone to wandering away. Sheep have been prone to sort of being stubborn and doing their own things and ending up in trouble. And so it was very common that sheep would have to be rescued by the shepherd. And what Asaph is doing in this psalm is he's basically saying, we recognize that we've wandered away from you. We, we recognize that we've rebelled against you. And because we've rebelled, we realize we're in trouble, but we still need you to come and to rescue us. We need you to save us. And God, by putting this in the hymnal, says, I will come and save you. I'm willing and able to rescue you. When I was in seventh grade, I had a a job, and my job was uh, to r- basically ride around in the hood of a car with my little best friend at the time, Britt Brandt. So we're both 12 or 13 years old. His dad owned a business, and we had these flyers that we would put on people's mailboxes. And so his dad would, you know, ride around in the car, and he would drop us off in these neighborhoods, and we put flyers up. And so incessantly, we got chased by dogs. Like, it was a, I can't believe he, my parents, A, let him do this, but B, that he was willing to sort of let us sort of risk our lives being chased by animals. Anyway, and so we would hang the flyers on the, uh, on the mailboxes. And, uh, and so eventually, after getting chased by enough dogs, my dad got some pepper spray. 
is like, here, buddy, here's some pepper spray. If a dog comes and sort of starts barking at you and you think he's going to bite, you spray him in the face with this pepper spray. So I carried this around on my little 13-year-old waistband when I was handing out these flyers. Anyway, so anyway, never really actually used it. Um, but one night I was at home in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. We were, I think I was sitting at the dining room table doing homework or something. We had two dogs. We had Bandit, who was a bird dog, and he was a puppy at the time, just a little bitty guy. And, uh, and then we had Frodo, and Frodo was a toy poodle. And so they were outside, and I was sitting there at the table doing my homework, and all of a sudden I heard this ruckus out on our back porch. And I heard Frodo and Bandit yelping and barking, and I heard these other dogs barking. I looked out the window, and there were these like five or six other big dogs that were sort of attacking them and trying to get their food. And so 12-year-old or 13-year-old BP, seventh grader, grabbed the pepper spray from where it lay on this counter, and I ran out in order to try to rescue Frodo and Bandit, right? And so the dog, when I came out of the door, the dog started to run away, and I started chasing after them, spraying the pepper spray. Okay, does anybody see why this would be a problem? <laughs> so as I'm running with the pepper spray, chasing the dogs, I'm, I ran through this massive cloud of pepper spray. So the dogs that were attacking Frodo and Bandit, they were fine. But immediately, my eyes started stinging like nothing I've ever felt. I'd run inside and wash my face under the, whatever. Anyway, the point is this. The children of Israel are in trouble. And God is saying, I'm willing to come and rescue you. Now, Frodo and Bandit hadn't really wandered off. They weren't really being rebellious. They were just little weenie dogs that couldn't defend themselves, right? But, but that's where they're different from the children of Israel. The children of Israel had wandered off. They had rebelled. They, they had been guilty of walking away from God, and they were in trouble as a result of that. But the amazing thing is, is that God is still willing to come and to rescue them. We see that in Jesus, right? Jesus is, is the image of the invisible God. Listen to the story of Luke chapter 15. What we see in the story is that these tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and demon-possessed people are coming, and they're following Jesus. And the Pharisees, the good people, they don't like it very much, and so they start complaining among themselves and complaining to Jesus. That's what this says here. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he, that is Jesus, told them this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it, right? What Jesus is saying here, the image of the invisible God, is I'm here precisely to rescue those people who have wandered away from me, whether it's via foolishness, whether it's via pride, whether it's because of selfishness, regardless of what it is, I'm here to rescue people who have wandered away from me. Let me ask you this really question, this question really quickly. How many of you have wandered away from God, right? How many of you have wandered away from God and you know that you're in need of rescue? You know, maybe you're in a relationship where you're like, this relationship is very unhealthy for me. I need, I need God to rescue me. You know, maybe you're in a situation vocationally where you're stuck and you say, I just, I need you to rescue me, God. I know that I've wandered away. I know I've turned my back on you, but I need you to rescue me. Maybe your life, for whatever reason, feels completely and utterly out of control. And what you need to hear this morning is that God, our God, our shepherd, is more than willing to rescue us. That that's exactly what his son Jesus came to do, was to rescue those of us who have wandered, who will wander away from him. That's good news. You can rest knowing that today, if you've wandered away from God and you're in trouble, that he's willing and able to come and rescue you. The second thing we see in the psalm 
is that because God is our shepherd, not only will he rescue us, but he'll restore us. Listen to these verses very quickly. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Again, in the same way that rescue is used four times, restore is used four times. And again, we don't know exactly what the context is here of the psalm, but we know that it could be that the, the kingdom is being torn in two to the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It could be that Asaph is writing this as he thinks that, that Absalom is going to take over the kingdom. It could be that it was written in a context. Some people have argued that it was written uh, when the Assyrians basically came to take over Israel and during the, the uh, Assyrian exile. Again, we don't know what the case is here, but we know that what Asaph is asking for is he's asking for things to be as they should be. He's asking for the people of God to be who they should be. He's asking for God to not only save them, but to restore them. Make us who we're supposed to be. Make us what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be this light shining in this darkness. We're supposed to be flourishing as human beings. Please restore us, O God. Again, we turn back to Scripture. We turn back to Jesus, and we look at Jesus. We see that Jesus came, and over and over again, what he was doing was he was not only saving, but he was restoring broken people, right? Some of you are familiar with the story of Jesus. They, he and the disciples cross over the Sea of Galilee, and they come into this area of the, uh, the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes. And uh, while they're there, there's a demon-possessed man that's living among the tombs, we're told, in Luke chapter 8. And, uh, and this guy that's sitting among the tombs is so, just so filled with these evil spirits, he's so crazy, that the people of the town have tried to chain him up, but he's broken the chains, and not only has he broken the change, but he, it says that he cuts himself, and it says he wails and screams among the tombs at night. I mean, the guy is completely and utterly lost. He's completely and utterly broken, and he runs forward to Jesus and to the disciples, and Jesus does what? Jesus not only saves him, but he restores him. Listen to the words of verse 35. It says that the people of the town heard that Jesus had cast these demons out of this man, and it says they went out to see what had happened. Then they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I love that picture, right? I love that image of this guy who just moments before was cutting himself, breaking chains, screaming, running around naked among the tombs, and all of a sudden he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's got clothing on, and he's in his right mind. He has been restored, right? Now, what's interesting is that this theme of restoration comes up over and over again, whether it's the prodigal son, he, you know, rebelled, went away from the father. As he comes back to the father, the father restores him completely. We see that Peter denies Jesus, and what does Jesus do? Jesus shows up on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he makes some fish over a fire, and he feeds Peter, and he restores Peter. We see that Mary Magdalene is restored. We see all these people over and over and over again that God, that Jesus, the image of the invisible God, is in the business not only of saving people, but restoring people, of bringing them back to who they were created to be, and actually in the idea of restoration, making them better than they originally were, even using their brokenness to make them more beautiful than they had been beforehand. How could there be a sermon that I would preach on restoration without quoting C.S. Lewis? Look at the screen here very quickly. It's a great quote, and I've used it before, but I'm using it again. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense, right? 
Sounds like John chapter 15, the vine dresser. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. This great idea that C.S. Lewis promotes, and of course he finds the idea of Scripture, but in Scripture we see this idea of restoration, of redemption, that God takes something that was created to be perfect, but it's fallen now and it's broken, and God uses actually the fallenness and the brokenness of that person to make them even more beautiful and even stronger than they would have been without the fallenness and the brokenness to begin with. Does that make sense? He weaves it in in an amazing way. He offers to restore that person. He restores us. How many of you in this room this morning need to hear that God is a God who offers you restoration, right? I don't know what your brokenness is. You know, I don't know if it's alcoholism. I don't know if it's some other form of addiction. I don't know if it's something that you went through in your home life growing up. I don't know if it's something that you're going through now. I don't know if it's brokenness in your relationship with your spouse or a friend. or I don't know what your brokenness is, but what I know is that there are many people in this room right now that feel acutely a desire to be restored, right? I mean, there are people in here who feel broken, and you don't want to just be saved. You want to be made right, And that's exactly what God offers. God offers you the ability to be made even better than you were before, to take that brokenness, to take that ugliness, and to weave it into a person who's even stronger and more beautiful than you were before. How many of you feel like you desire to be restored? God, who is our shepherd, offers to restore us. The last thing that we see in this passage is that not only is God, our great shepherd, there to rescue us? Not only is he willing to restore us and able to do it, but God is our shepherd. He also is there to rejoice over us. Look at a section of verses from the same passage. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Over and over again, he says, the psalmist says, let your face shine, let your face shine. He wanted Israel not only to be saved and restored, but he wanted to have a right relationship with his father. That's, that's what sort of this idea of God's face shining upon us is all about. In fact, the way that we understand what this phrase means is we understand its antithesis, where God at times in Scripture says that he hides his face from us. And what that essentially means is that, that God is displeased or that he, he's drawn away from us. And what the psalmist is saying here is he's saying, God, what we need you to do is we need you to be pleased with us. We need you to rejoice over us. You know, one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture is found in the Old Testament. And, uh, and it essentially says this. It says that the Lord your God will rejoice over you with singing. Just think about that for a moment. Think about this picture of a father holding a child in his arms, maybe a little bitty baby, and this father rejoicing over this child with singing. And, and what the Old Testament is communicating, what the New Testament is communicating is that God, as our shepherd, will rejoice over his children with singing, even when they've wandered away, even when they've rebelled, even when they've willingly done foolish and sinful things, he still will rejoice over us with singing. Again, let's turn back to Jesus and see what Jesus has to say about this. We talked about Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep earlier in the sermon. I'm going to read a little section of it again, and I want you to hear what happens, how the shepherd responds when he rescues and restores his little lost sheep. Verse 4, what 
man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. In other words, what Jesus is saying here through the parable of the prodigal son, through the parable of the lost sheep, what he's saying is, regardless of why you're lost, regardless of of what reason you, you would give for wandering away, whether it was sinfulness or foolishness or whatever it was, what Jesus is saying here is that God, our great shepherd, rejoices over you when you return to him, when he rescues you, right? And the reason this is important is because most of us have this image of God who, when we have wandered away, when we haven't had our quiet time in two weeks, when we do that thing over and over again that we know we're not supposed to do, most of us have this image of God sitting upon a throne with a furrowed brow waiting to let the hammer fall, right? And instead, what Jesus says is, you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. God is a shepherd, He's a shepherd who is able and willing to rescue you. He's a shepherd who's able and willing to restore you. But he's also a shepherd who, like any good shepherd, when he finally goes and rescues that sheep and brings it back home, he's not angry. He instead rejoices. There were a few, a few years back, um, Levi was probably three or four years old. We had gone on a hike up around the reservoir at Barrie. And uh, I was fishing and, you know, kind of casting lure in the water. And Sam and May and Krista were sort of doing their thing around the shore and uh, the kids, um, Sam and May, wanted to start walking back. And so, um, you know, Krista said, is it okay if I start walking back with them? I said, sure. And Levi wanted to stick around with me for a minute while I was fishing. And uh, so Levi, after about literally 30 seconds, said, hey, can I go with uh, Sam and May? And so I said, sure. And so he kind of wandered off along the shore and started kind of following them. I didn't think anything of it. And so I fished for a few more minutes, cast for a few more minutes, didn't catch anything. And so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go back with them. And so I sort of jogged down the main road away from the reservoir down to the parking lot of the great, the, the old mill. And I caught up with Krista and Sam and May. And uh, I looked around, I didn't see Levi. And I said, hey, I thought Levi was with you guys. She's like, no, I thought he was with you. And I automatically was like, oh no, I know what happened. He turned the other direction on the path and he was going to take sort of another way down to the the uh, great, the old mill. And so, you know, I got a little nervous, but I thought he's probably fine. But I had to sort of give my fishing pole to the kids. And I basically said, hey, you guys go down to the car in case Levi goes that way. I'll go try to find him up at the reservoir. So I, in my amazingly, you know, cardiovascularly fit being that I am, jogged up that hill for, I don't know, 12 minutes or whatever, almost dying on the way. And, uh, and I made my way back up to the reservoir and I was looking around. I didn't see Levi anywhere, anywhere. And, uh, and so I passed some people, and I said, hey, and this was a hard question to ask, by the way. Have you seen a little boy, about three years old, wandering around by himself, probably in tears and scared to death, you know? And so I would ask, no, I haven't seen anybody. And then I you know, ran around the lake a little bit more, and I was whistling. I can whistle really loudly. I'm not going to do it right now, but whistle really loudly, and I was yelling for Levi, and I passed some more people, hey, have you seen a little guy right here that I was supposed to be taking care of and protecting? No, I haven't seen anybody. Finally, got around to the other side of the lake, and I ran into these two ladies who said, yeah, we've seen that little boy. We asked him if he was lost, and he said no. (laughs) When when we got home that night, I'm going to go ahead and spoil the story a little bit because you know he's here this morning anyway. But when we got home that night, we asked him, I said, why did you tell those ladies that you weren't lost? And he said, well, I knew where I was. I'm at the reservoir, not lost. Anyway, (laughs) 
<clears throat> I just don't have any parents with me. Anyway, so finally I was running, 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 running around the backside of the lake, and I see Levi off in the distance, and he's tootling kind of toward me or whatever. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to be overly dramatic because I didn't want to scare him too badly. And I also didn't want to make a fool of myself. But it was like a scene from a movie. Like, we came close to one another. We ran towards one another. And, you know, he ran to me. And I held him in my arms. I swung him around around and around. And uh, I was just filled with relief. And I was filled with happiness. And I was probably a little bit teary. And uh, I just was like, oh, buddy, I'm so glad you're okay. But I rejoiced over my lost son, right? I wasn't angry with him. Yeah, I didn't go, I'm going to you know, spank you when we get home, and you're not allowed to watch TV for two weeks or anything. I was just happy to have my son back. I was just happy that, uh, that we found one another again, right? That's, that's how shepherds respond. That's how good parents respond, right? They, they respond by rejoicing over their lost children. They respond by rejoicing over their lost sheep. That's exactly what Jesus says happens here when one of his lost sheep returns. How many of you in this room this morning need to hear that God, as your great shepherd, rejoices over you when you return to him, right? No real qualifications, right? The prodigal son didn't even get to give a speech. The father just said, you're back in, right? And not only that, but there are plenty of times where Jesus went out and he restored people and, and he rejoiced over them. And all that was required was a willingness on that person to say, I confess that I've tried to do things my own way and now I trust in you. That's all that's required to have God the Father rejoice over you. Now, one of the things I talk about over and over again in sermons is that what makes these sermons Christian sermons is when Jesus is the answer to the dilemma, right? Let me direct your attention to verse 17 of this psalm. It's very interesting. You know, Jesus referred to himself most commonly as uh, a son of man or the son of man. It was a, this prophetic figure in Daniel who's essentially uh, come the Messiah, come to, uh, to save the people of, of Israel. And hear what the psalmist writes into this psalm. He says, But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man who you have made strong for yourself. Part of what Asaph is doing here, he doesn't even know he's doing it. Part of of what Asaph is doing is he's crying out for salvation. He's crying out for restoration. He's crying out for the ability of God to, to look upon and to rejoice over his people. But he knows that all of those three things can only happen if there's a hero who comes to do all of them. And in this verse, what we see is that it's the man at God's right hand who is our true hero. It's the man at God's right hand who comes to rescue us. It's the man at God's right hand who comes to restore us. It's the man at God's right hand who enables God to look upon you and to look upon me with rejoicing, to rejoice over us with singing. It's not because of our righteousness and goodness. It's because of the perfection of this right, this man at God's right hand who is Jesus. Asaph, empowered by the Holy Spirit, speaks prophetically about the hero that would save Israel, but this hero that would also save you and would save me. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a declaration that uh, as our shepherd that you will indeed uh, rescue us, that you will rescue those who trust in your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that as our shepherd, you will also restore us, that you will help us to be fully human through the power of your spirit and because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Father, I thank you that as our shepherd, you will rejoice over us in the same way that a shepherd rejoices over a lost sheep that has been brought home again 
not because of worthiness in us, but rather because of the ultimate worth of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it is in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen.